0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, The Newer Diabetes Drugs and Patients with Nash. In this conversation, the second, Fatty Liver Foundation President Wayne Eskridge describes some challenges in helping diabetes patients broaden their focus from the pancreas and glucose to encompass liver and liver fat without being overwhelmed or confused. The remaining surfers, Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Sant Campbell, and I, Explore ways that physicians and advocates can work to overcome a silo mentality. This issue becomes critical to master as the leading causes of mortality in diabetes patients start to shift from cardiovascular disease towards cancer, and particularly hepatocellular and pancreatic cancers. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. next question, just to Wayne. And specifically, it's about what do you expect likely patient reaction is and will be to this information? And how might it affect patients who have type 2 diabetes and concerns about fatty liver? And how might it affect diabetes patients that don't have fatty liver?
1: It's interesting in the uh, patient community because we have a very intense focus in the diabetic community on insulin and A1C, and we have almost no emphasis on anything having to do with NASH. So when we start to talk about combinations and bringing those two modalities or those two conditions into common treatments, I think that we have a real education problem that we have to get over. And I'm not certain this is really your question, but the diabetic community is very much focused on insulin and and glycemic control. And when you start to talk about fat management and energy balance and those kinds of things, which is more specifically happening in liver chemistries, you got. Two different kinds of conversations there and the histories of the people that have come through those experiences are so different that I think we have a lot of education that we have to do in order to get the the patient community to be understanding. I think they're anxious for solutions, but there's a level of concern about multiple medications and possible side effects, which I think we haven't done a really good job with historically.
0: Now that's from the patient perspective. Yeah, yeah. from the
1: patient perspective.
0: I think You'll find some not entirely unrelated issues from the physician perspective as well when we get there. So for patients who have type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease separately, how is this information likely to strike them?
1: Yeah, I suppose it depends on when they found out they had both because most of the People have gone through the process of learning about being a diabetic and then somewhere fairly far along in their diabetic course, they find out that they have liver disease. So they will be approaching liver disease from a perspective of a fairly robust education about the pancreas and insulin and that sort of thing. I think that there'll be an element of here's more stuff, you know, here's a, here's another pilot of uh, things that I have to deal with. But there's definitely a desire on the part of the patients to find solutions or to participate in solutions. So I think there we certainly have an opportunity to handle it well, but we don't always do that.
0: Let me uh, swing that question back to you. When you treat patients who have concomitant T2D and fatty liver disease... Do you address those patients any differently around these issues and these medications than patients who don't have diabetes or who are pre-diabetic, which I guess is the third category.
2: Very important point, and I think clearly, yes. I try to loop back to the diabetologist in charge and get him informed about the data that's available on the resolution of NASH part for the GLP-1s, so, because that's been shown. There's histological benefit. This is an important endpoint from what I understand of the disease. We have linked that to improved quality of life. So when I have a diabetic patient, I discuss with a diabetologist if a GLP-1 couldn't be a useful treatment partner for that patient. This is far easier than for a non-diabetic patient where this drug is not approved. Now, coming from a private practice, I do have some patients that I do treat with GLP-1s in the absence of diabetes for weight loss. The downside of that is that these patients will have to pay for that medication themselves. It's not reimbursed by public insurance. So the barrier for them to get that or to buy that medication is is, uh, just much higher. To summarize that question again, yes, I think based on the benefits we've seen in the histology control trials, uh, GLP-1s in type 2 diabetes is one useful add-on drug. So Wayne, what would the path
0: to patient acceptance from here look like?
1: Well, the trials, of course, have to speak to it because they will respond to what their doctor tells them. So we have to have the doctors educated and being advocates for the therapy. If we get past that hurdle, there's outreach that we need to do to the patient community on a patient level of information, but that's that's just part our need to educate people about health. But the, the critical thing is that the physician has to be an advocate, a, a, an active supporter for this as a strategy and to be able to explain it to the patient in a way that makes sense to them as, as why they should go with that kind of treatment.
3: Given the FDA's recent guidelines that Manal brought up, that basically highlighted on stabilising of disease and non-progression could be an outcome for NAFLD and NASH. We stabilise at F3, we don't get to F4, for example. And as Jean's quite rightly said, these medications, whilst they are shown to improve lots of other cardiometabolic events, they reduce liver fat. They may not reduce fibrosis, but I don't think there's any evidence to show that they promote severity of disease. Is that right, Jean? So maybe there is the opportunity for these class of drugs now to be used more as a stabilizing outcome. Four, yeah, three.
2: Yeah, that's a very important aspect, Louise. And there is actually data in the published analysis, New England Journal, first author Phil Newsom, where they provided the information on the change of fibrosis stages. And you see that worsening of fibrosis stage in the placebo group is significantly higher compared to the SEMA groups. And actually, here you do see a dose response. So I'm looking at the data. You had eighteen percent of fibrosis worsening in the placebo, but only four point nine in the SEMA point four, which is the highest dose used. So we do have additional data here that the SEMA acts to stabilize these disease, uh, these patients over the trial treatment period.
3: So does that mean the FDA could well have just opened up the NASH world to SEMA within the stabilization and non-increase side?
0: I think that's medically true and regulatorily really interesting, which I'll come back to in a little bit. Whether they can get that approval I think they probably can, although it would take time, particularly if you take the interpretation that Manal had, took from the FDA, which is that a halt in progression is, in fact, acceptable for approval. If you you meet the steatosis endpoint and you halt progression on fibrosis, that should be enough to get you approved. The answer of approval, there might be some challenges educating the physicians that you would need to educate about this in detail. Because... They're the same people, and Louis, you've talked about this in other situations, who are educating the patients now. And if they're primed not to talk about the liver, but to talk about the pancreas or cardiovascular as being the endpoints that matter, then making that translation might be a challenge in the absence of approval.
3: I agree. That lack of education on the liver aspect in diabetes may well have to change. And I believe last week, the Lancet published the Pearson-Stutter et al. group's data that now shows that cancer is now the biggest cause of mortality, excess deaths associated with diabetes. So it's taken over from vascular disease. And the two leading cancers were liver cancer cancer and pancreatic cancer at a twofold risk factor. Now they even describe these cancers as diabetic related cancers. So can we now, as an endocrine population, not discuss liver cancer, which is classified as a diabetes related cancer with a whole patient group to say to increase the opportunities of lifestyle altercation to help them help themselves. But Wayne's quite right. These discussions aren't happening until too late despite the evidence now being there. Liver cancer is one of the fastest growing cancers in the world. It's an NCD problem in the WHO's SDG outcomes for 2030. They were also keen to say that cancer expected to surpass ischemic heart disease as the leading cause of death by 2030. And while we're all not looking for liver cancer, it's growing exponentially in a lot of low and middle-income countries as well as our own. But the ability to use injectables in a low and middle-income country is actually logistically very, very difficult when they don't have access to basic diabetic medications where education and increased knowledge may well be the best opportunities and the most cost effective. Those conversations are going to have to be had because I fear for the litigation of, I've now got cancer, you've known I've been diabetic for X amount of years, and I've never been assessed, are conversations that are probably going to increase. And that's a shame. It's avoidable. It's certainly detectable, and we can manage it, but
0: we're not. In the States, one would allege that the threat of litigation wakes up people in a hurry to what they need to be testing for. So that's an interesting point in its own right. The other thought I had listening to you is going back to our old friends, the cover scan work and some of the other work on on COVID, is that liver fat or pancreatic fat in combination with obesity is predictive of severity of response to COVID. Now everybody's getting vaccinated or will get vaccinated, but there'll be varying strains and COVID isn't going to go away and they'll just change and the severity and the complexity of it will change. But you've now got at least two clear markers where liver fat and pancreatic fat untreated lead to an inferior outcome, in both in terms of survival and quality of life. So that's really interesting to put together, I think.
1: That's just vital to that aspect of the disease process. As patients, we've always scratched our heads as to why stopping the progression of NASH is not a recognizable, achievable benefit. For me, my personal situation, had I been able to stop it when I should have been diagnosed, I would never have had all the problems that I've had to deal with. And that's so true of most people in my community. So this business of having to have a cure as opposed to being able to have good management, is a subject that's near and dear to us. And we know that these cancers are part of the process that is just going to get out of control if we don't uh, deal with it better
0: we hope you have enjoyed this conversation we are releasing two more conversations from this episode and we will release our next full episode on wednesday february 25th i hope you'll join us then until then stay safe if you're in the polar vortex zone stay warm and see you on the podcast bye-bye now
3: you've been
2: listening to the surfing the nash tsunami podcast Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.